I am just one man among seven billion others. For almost 40 years, I've been taking photographs of our planet in an attempt to understand the Earth on which we live. As humanity progresses, I have the feeling we are still living in a two-tier world, undermined by inequalities, ravaged by wars. We're still incapable of living together. Today, naively, as a child might do, I want to ask a question. Why? Why, from one generation to the next, do we continue to make the same mistakes? I have not sought an answer in numbers or statistics, but in humanity itself. For me, having photographed the world on a grand scale, today it is in eyes and faces and words that I see a forceful means of reflecting the human soul. There is a proverb that says the eyes are the mirror of the soul. I believe it to be so. For there is nothing more compelling than someone looking you right in the eye and bearing their soul. Every new encounter is a step forward and every story is unique. Witnessing so many other life stories made me wonder, do we all have the same desire for love, for freedom and for recognition? In a world torn between tradition and modernity, are our unchanging needs the same everywhere? Ultimately, what does it mean to be a human today? What is the meaning of life? Are our differences so huge? Do we not share more values than we think? And if so, why is it still so hard to understand one another? I wanted to ask all these questions to speak about humanity. Perhaps a crazy challenge, somewhat utopic. But along with my teams, we set out in all humility. For two years, we traveled through 65 countries, filming nature and the places man has created. In our quest to meet the world's people, we spoke to more than 2,000 of them. People we talk about, but above all, people we never talk about. People who tell their stories for the first time. I wanted to detach these men and women from their environments, focusing on their faces and words. Imagine in a film where the beauty of the world resonates through their voices, offering up a journey through vast landscapes, but above all through individual human stories. In human, there is no commentary. I have left their voices pure and direct. In placing poverty, war, immigration and homophobia at the heart of this film, I've also made certain critical and political choices. But these men and women talk to me about everything. The difficulties of growing up, about love and happiness. It is the wealth and diversity of their voices that defines the heart of human. That was Jan Artus Bertrand talking about his most recent documentary film, Human, which we're going to hear the English parts of coming up next here on the Magical Mystery Tour. In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here. 
to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or, or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. And good luck. We care about your world. Stay tuned. I remember my, my uh, you know, my stepfather, 
you know, would beat me and he, you know, he would beat me with extension cords and, and, and hangers and, you know, pieces of wood and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, after every beating, he would tell me, you know, it hurt me more than it hurt you. And, you know, I only did it because I love you. Which kind of, you know, it communicated the wrong message to me about what love was. So for many years, you know, I thought that love was supposed to hurt. And um, I hurt everyone that I love. And I measured love by how much pain someone would take from me. Um, and it wasn't until I came to prison in an environment that is devoid of love that I began to have some sort of understanding about what it actually was and was not. And I met someone um, and she gave me my first real insight into what love was because she saw past my conditions and the fact that I was in prison with a life sentence for murder not, and not only for murder, but for doing the worst kind of murder that a man can do, murdering a woman and a child. And it was Agnes the mother and grandmother of Patricia and Chris, the woman and child that I murdered, who gave me my best lesson about love because by all rights, she should hate me. But she didn't. And over the course of time and through the journey that we took, <laughs> that's been pretty amazing. She gave me love and Tell me what it was.
after my brother was killed, for years I worked against peace. I was very active in mobilization. I was very active in throwing stones. I was very active in writing. And when I was 18, I decided that I needed to learn Hebrew, even though it was mandatory in my high school and I didn't do it. And when I went to learn Hebrew, it was the first time I sit in a classroom, everybody around me is Jewish, but we're not soldiers, we're not settlers. And that interaction was so different. And we started over really weird things, have nothing to do with conflict. We started our conversations about music, the fact that I love country music, which is really strange for Palestinians. And I found a couple of people who did. We talked about coffee and which coffee is better, uh, instant coffee or Arabic coffee. But it was from there that the whole demonization of the other was so hard to follow anymore because we, we got to see a human being. And next time there was a suicide bombing in Jerusalem, I didn't think of the enemy and suicide bombing against the enemy. I thought of my friends and I picked up the phone and I started calling to make sure none of them are hurt. Next time there was a problem in East Jerusalem and somebody was shot, all these people in my Hebrew class started calling me and wanting to make sure that I'm fine. And that interaction, that reality made me come to a point of understanding that we have to bring down those walls that separate us. And if we know each other a little better as a humans, we might be able to also love each other instead of kill each other. My greatest hardship is getting over my anger and getting over my understanding of what is justice. Uh, I, for many years, thought justice and revenge were the same thing. And it took me years to overcome the anger of having my brother being killed in Jerusalem by Israeli soldiers and being able to come to the point of reconciling and getting to know the other side and work for peace. That was one of the hardest challenges. But ironically, it's not it doesn't end in one point. Most people want to believe that change happened in one minute, and that's not true. That change that happened with me was a process, and this greatest challenge still continues with me today. Waking up every morning, reading the news, getting angry, and then deciding which path I want to take. Every day when I read about, and it happens quite a bit, I read about somebody being killed in prison from torture, it brings to me the memories of my brother being killed in prison through torture. And I have to again decide that this is not the path I want to take. It's a daily decision. It's a daily fight. After becoming a person who wants to work for peace, I would go to schools and talk to students. And one time I went to an Israeli school and talked to a student who was very angry. His uncle was killed. Uh, by a Palestinian suicide bomber and all he wanted is a revenge and he told me all I want is to go to the army and kill as many Palestinians as possible and I looked at him and I said I totally understand I have I had the same pain I understand where the anger comes from I understand that motivation of wanting to revenge of wanting justice and thinking that revenge is justice I can totally identify and you know what, take, take a moment and tell me, tell me how you feel, yell at me. It's fine, it's fine to yell, it's fine to be angry. But then you still have the ability to make a difference. If you go and kill somebody else, their relative is gonna come and kill somebody else from your side. And we're gonna go into this cycle of killing. And then your neighbor might end up having to suffer because of your action. Is it really worth it? Is, it, is killing somebody else gonna make you feel better? 
Trust me, it will not. I've gone through this path of revenge. Hurting other people never makes you better. It makes you angrier, it makes you more bitter, and it makes you more empty. Try to think a little differently. Try to reach out. And know what's amazing is it was, it was a long conversation, and a couple hours later, he looked at me and he said, I don't know if I can hold a gun anymore. I don't know if I want to even go to the army anymore. And to watch that happening... To me, if nothing else I've done in my life and saving that one person from becoming a murderer, it's worth everything I've done. On the 16th of January 2007, an Israeli border police shot and killed my 10 years old daughter, Abir, in front of her school in Anata, where I live. She was with her sister and two other friends, 9.30 in the morning. In her head, in the back, from a distance of 15 to 20 meters by a rubber bullet. Abir wasn't a fighter. She was just a child. She don't know anything about the conflict and she is not part of this conflict. Unfortunately, she lost her life because she's a Palestinian. I'm an Israeli who lost his uh, daughter to a suicide bombing on the 4th of uh, September, 1997. And I'm uh, a product of, uh, of an education system. These are two societies at war and uh, they socialize the young generation to make them being able to sacrifice themselves when time comes. And this is uh, true to Palestinian society and this is also true to Israeli society. Because we are human beings, sometimes you think, if I kill the killer, or anyone from the other side, from the Israelis, or maybe 10, this will give me back my daughter. No. I'll cause another pain and another victim to the others. I decide to broke this circle of violence and blood and revenge by stop killing and revenge and support revenge by myself. My definition of sides have changed dramatically. Today on my side are all those who want peace and are willing to pay the price of peace and the other side are those who do not want peace and are not willing to pay the price of peace. Many people told me that it's not your right to forgive in her name. And the answer, it's also not my right to revenge in her name. I hope she, she's satisfied. I hope she rests in peace.
I come from a family of extreme, extreme poverty. I'm one of 16 brothers and sisters, six twins. I'm not a twin. Out of the 16, seven of them die in the first year of their life. Because um, we did not have access to portable water, to sanitation, to healthcare, or education. So seven of them die, and I'm a number eighth. So I just merely made it alive. We could not resist that extreme poverty in the Andes. So my parents migrated to the coast of Peru, and all of us need to work to supplement the family income. So I have been a shoeshine boy, and simultaneously sell newspaper and lottery and uh, tamales and other things to uh, generate a supplementary income for the family. By accidents of life, I had a, a contact with people with the Peace Corps from the United States who came to do community development in my shanty town where I lived in, in Chimbote, Peru. So I had to shine at night or during the day and then study at night or during the day. And by accidents of life, I played soccer and became a semi-professional soccer player. And then um, a professor discovered that I liked to write poetry. And he was a poet, so he stimulated me, as well as these two couples from the Peace Corps. And I always asked questions and questions and questions, so they thought, this is a crazy boy. And they helped me to come to the United States with a soccer scholarship to study in San Francisco at a Jesuit university. Had it not been for that accident, I would never have had access to higher education. Human beings have the right to have equal opportunity. I'm not suggesting that those who have money or that the world, the international organizations in which I've been connected with, I'm not suggesting them to give them fish away I am demanding the world to give the poor an equal opportunity to learn how to fish. Because to give fish away is an insult to the dignity of the poor. I can be poor, and there's a lot of poor in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, in my own country, but we have a dignity. So please don't give me fish. Just. Let me have the right to learn how to fish. We need to have less politics and more leadership. Leadership means to make decisions, thinking not only of today and your popularity, but leadership means thinking about the future even though you will not see the results. I plead to the leaders of the world to make less politics and make more leadership decisions that I inspire, that has the courage, the commitment to the future. My mom was not educated, but she know that 
with education, everything is possible. So that is why she stood with me up to the point that she was terribly beaten by my uncles. She wanted me to continue with my studies and she never gave up until when she was beaten almost to death and she had to escape and she left me. She ran for her dear life. I don't know whether she's dead or not, but she really wanted me to go to school. And here I am today, I got my education and I'm also hoping to know more and to fulfill all um, my dreams. When I was growing up, I had an abusive stepfather that was both sexually and physically and emotionally abusive. And this affected me as a child and my dreams in life. I, I, I felt like I didn't have any dreams or, you know, I didn't believe I could be someone. And then when I was 17 years old, I was, I was homeless and I was living in a women's refuge and two people lived next door to me and they moved into my supported flat and they were doing drugs at the time and they started taking heroin and it very quickly got out of control and within three months the young man that was coming around to my flat died of a heroin overdose when I was in the room with him and it led me to being caught and telling his parents what had happened and why it had happened and this was the defining point in my life where I needed to change and I just remember thinking my life could have gone down two paths. I could follow him to death or I could do something with my life. And a few days later, I walked into my local college and I asked them, please teach me, I wanna learn. And there was an amazing tutor there and his name was Paul. And Paul said to me, come and learn with me, I'll teach you. I do a sport course and I want you to be on that course, Sophie. And I just remember thinking, you know, this guy's amazing. You know, I've got no qualifications and he's willing to take me on. And Paul used to come to the homeless hostels and pick me up and he'd take me to the boxing ring. And I remember one day having this boxing match with Paul and punching him in the stomach and him screaming in pain. And I asked him what was wrong and he told me he had stomach cancer. Paul spent the last two years of his life engaging with me and making me believe in myself. He lost his life before I graduated at college, but it was that one person that believed that I could make it. And the fact that he'd done this for the last two years of his life, you know, what an exceptional person to be facing death and say, I'm not gonna give up. I'm gonna go out and help people and make them believe in themselves. And it was that one person that did that for me that made me think, do you know what? I can do it. What I would like to say to the politicians out there is that never write a young person off because of their circumstances. Politicians in the UK are pushing for young people to be into work. But how can a young person be into work if they've gone through trauma in their lives that have meant they've disengaged in education and not got the qualifications. We must understand the journey that a young person has gone through before we force them into making huge life choices like getting a job. We must take our time and be patient with these young people. And over time, they will change and they will make a difference to society and they will become successful. But we need to give them the time to do this and to overcome the difficulties and the trauma they've had in their lives.
Um, I committed a murder when I was 17. I'm currently serving a life sentence. I've been incarcerated 23 years now. I think that uh, by me being young at that time, you know, committing this murder and receiving life, you know, and it's almost in a sense, sort of to me like a double punishment because I'm no longer, again, that kid that, that did this, you know, he's a, that person is a stranger to me now. You know, it's like when you think back and you're like, wow, you know, I really did, golly, you know what I mean? I can't believe so. It's sort of like a double punishment. You know, this is my own person, but it was to keep a person for life. I mean, the stuff, what does it mean? You know what I mean? After you realize or you come to understand what you did, it's to me sort of inhumane, you know, when animals, attack people or main people, we, we put them down, you know what I mean? But us being human, you know, humans evolve, you know, we give second chances. So I don't want to come across as being uh, unremorseful because I'm very remorseful, very sorry, very torn about what I did when I think of that. I can't, you know, look the mother in the face who child I took, you know what I mean? And, and not feel bad. I think by me, having trying to change and, and, and redeem myself from that by being a better person, changing my life, is something that should have value in a sense, you know. Me being 15 years old with a life sentence, what could I tell someone who sentences young young people like me? I could tell them it hurt, you know. It takes them out of life away off one crime, you know, but I have to take responsibility. But at the same time, that's a pain that is really unexplainable, you know, to be sentenced to life. Never be out there with your family again. Never be able to do certain things that you never did. And never be able to com complete your goals that you had planned, you know. When you're 15, you're young. I wouldn't say I was stupid or nothing, but I did make some bad decisions. And I would have never known one decision can Caused my whole life, you know. Being sentenced to life, that's worse than dying, you know. Like a real, real, real bad pain. I'm 53 years old. I live in Montgomery, Alabama in the United States. And I'm an attorney that does human rights work in the Deep South. I was told that I could never go to the public school system because I was black. I was told I could never go to college because I was black. I was told I, I would never be a professional or a lawyer because I was poor. I was told that I didn't come from a family that was good enough and strong enough to have the kind of opportunities uh, that I've been able to, uh, to enjoy. And um, that reality is what shaped me in a lot of ways. And I always knew uh, that my people were as good as anybody's people. My community was as good as anyone's community. There was as much dignity and love and compassion and commitment in my poor rural black settlement as there was in the most esteemed and respected communities that someone could identify. And when I think about uh, the issue of poverty, uh, I think about the psychic and social uh, impact it has on, on people who live great uh, next to great wealth. And I do believe that uh, much of the poverty we experience in the world is created by structures. It's created by the way we think. It's created by the way we don't engage in uh, problem solving. And that's why I believe that the opposite of poverty uh, is not wealth. I don't think the answer to uh, poverty is just creating wealth. I think the opposite of poverty uh, is justice. And when we commit ourselves to justice, we actually create 
opportunities for reducing problem, uh, poverty, uh, deconstructing uh, poverty. It requires a commitment to justice. I've met a lot of people about whom I could say they may never get out, they may always be a threat to themselves or others, but I've never met anybody about whom I could say this person is beyond redemption, uh, beyond hope, uh, beyond the possibility of restoration. And because of that, I don't believe we should be engaged in killing uh, the, one of the first uh, cases I ever represented, worked on where the man was executed uh, was a man we jumped in at the last minute. Uh, he couldn't find a lawyer. I tried to stop the execution, and, and every court I went to said too late. And on the night this man was scheduled to be executed, I went down to be with him. And the conversation we have is a conversation I've never forgotten. He asked me, he said to me, it's been such a strange day, Brian. He said, said it over and over again. He said, when I woke up uh, this morning, the guard said to me, what do you want for breakfast? At midday, they came to me and said, what do you want for lunch? In the evening, they said to me, what do you want for dinner? He said, all day long, people have been saying, what can I do to help you? Uh, can I get you stamps to mail your letters? Can I get you water? Can I get you coffee? And I'll never forget this man saying to me in those last few minutes, he said, Brian, more people have said, uh, what can I do to help you in the last 14 hours of my life than they ever did in the first 19 years of my life? And holding his hands, I couldn't help but think, yes, where were they when you were three years old being physically abused? Where were they when you were seven being sexually abused? Where were they when you were nine and 10 experimenting with drugs? Where were they when you were 14 homeless and roaming the streets with no place to go? And with those questions resonating in my mind, this man was pulled away. Uh, the hair was shaved off his body. He was strapped in the electric chair and he was executed. And there's no question in my mind that we did something profoundly immoral, profoundly unjust and profoundly at odds with human dignity and human rights uh, when we executed that man. And so for me, the death penalty is really about overcoming our impulses uh, that are bad, that are negative, that are destructive, and elevating those impulses within all of us uh, that recognize compassion, that recognize redemption, and recognize restoration. The, the death penalty is a distraction uh, from an important human journey that gets us closer to each other, gets us closer to human compassion and understanding. And eliminating it just eliminates one more roadblock uh, to, the, to the destination I think we have to get to, uh, which is more justice, uh, more mercy, uh, and more compassion. On the first morning of the first execution, it was um, two o'clock in the morning I arrived at my office. The execution was scheduled for 7 a.m. There were satellite dishes from television stations around the world across the street from my office. There were protesters there uh, against the death penalty. There were proponents there for the death penalty. Everybody had their little signs and flags. It was, uh, it was like a big ceremony. It wasn't a solemn event where somebody was going to die. It was like a big ceremonial killing that everybody had to be in on. This was worldwide entertainment. I was having a hard time dealing with that part of it. Why, why would people want to know the, the details of a, a gory execution of killing a human being against his will? Um, I went to the man's cell finally at about a quarter to seven in the morning, I told him, it's getting to be that time. I'm going to be taking him down the hallway in about 15 minutes. I read him his death warrant again as required by law. 
I was sitting on the bunk just next to him. He had on leg irons and belly chains and handcuffs. Uh, as I started reading the death warrant, I realized I was having some difficulty getting all of these words out of my mouth. And uh, the condemned inmate sitting just next to me with his elbow just sort of nudged me in my side and said, it's okay, boss, I'm ready. And uh, I realized that in this horrible moment, in this premeditated ceremonial moment that I was going to kill this man, he was trying to make me comfortable because he knew for some reason, I really didn't want to do what I was getting ready to do. That was a hard moment. Putting him to death was a very difficult task that day. After being incarcerated for 18 and a half years, you know, six of them on death row and eventually be found innocent. I would say the injustice for me um, was actually being found guilty, you know, through no evidence, through no DNA, through no fingerprints, through no eyewitnesses to the case, just by somebody saying one thing and being totalized and being actually found guilty. And I can remember I spoke with some of the jurors you know, after they found me not guilty and they apologized to me. They said they didn't e they don't even know how I was found guilty and they apologized for the mishaps. And um, I was released into the to the wee hours of the night, three o'clock in the morning, still dark, no money, no compensation, no counseling, no job, nothing. You know, I was lucky to have somebody there by my side to take me in at that time. Some people aren't so lucky. Don't go there, you know, because maybe people don't know why, <laughs> why what, what is the purpose of life. And your question about wealth is that we have made mistakes. So I think simply, in a way that people can understand it from their own lives, we have valued derivatives higher than the source of life. So we've said if we extract something out of the ground, oil or gold or molybdenum or something, coal, that this has a value. And then we burn it up or we use it up and then it gets more and more scarce. And we've said this scarcity is the value. Well, that is absolutely inverted. We're breathing air. You take away this air and we are dead. You take away molybdenum and we're not dead. We just don't have molybdenum. So you have, on the one hand, scarcity, which we've given a huge value. And on the other hand, you have abundance, which we've said is zero. Well, this is just simply false. We've made a huge error in logic, and it goes back over hundreds of generations. And in hundreds of generations, we've had wars and we've had all this activity. But the fact is, 
we were wrong. And until we say, oh, we made a mistake, and the air and the water and the biodiversity is the real value, and these other things are just material things, then, you know, if you look at people who are grasping, I mean, look at Donald Trump. He wants to sit in a chair which is covered in gold, and he puts gold on his ceiling and his walls. That's disgusting. That's outrageous behavior. It's like he has the warehouse of Saddam Hussein's old chairs or something. It's bizarre. You know, and what happens when you die? You grasp your golden chairs? I mean, you know, please. We need to realize that there is something sacred about life. It's not our chairs that are important. It's our lives. It's our loved ones. It's the joy we can experience in life. It's the beauty, the symmetry, the synergy, the symbiotic nature. It's all this beauty. It's all this wonderful things about life. This is what we need. Now we're rushing. I remember I I grew up in the 50s. When I was young, they were saying, well, all this technology is going to make life easier and we're going to work less. Now I see people who have jobs and they're working 90 hours a week. I don't think they're working less. And there are a lot of people who don't have any jobs. So, you know, this is crazy. This is not what it's about. We need to do less. Our impact on the earth has been horrific. And we don't need to do that. That's the interesting thing that I saw in my research into ecosystems. It isn't inevitable that they degrade. They're basically a reflection of our consciousness. If we understand what our impacts have been historically, because if we don't understand history, we're destined to repeat it. So even though, for instance, we've had Gandhi. What a wonderful example. You know, after all of these centuries and invasions and colonization all over the world, a man comes out with nothing. And he says, you have no right to do this. You can't come in with an army and say, you know, I have a bigger army, I have a big gun. So your country is now my country. What are you talking about? You know, you can't do that. And when Gandhi brought this up, it was not fashionable, you know, to mention this, but actually there is no argument for this. I think Wilberforce in the parliament, when he brought up, by the way, there is no justification for slavery. You can't buy and sell human beings in the public market. Well, okay, now here we are at another stage in human history. So, when Gandhi brought up the fact that you can't say that, you know, I... St- Sometimes it was a choice. But this choice that every day of my work, when you attribute it and you see what it brings to people, there is no going back. There is no way I would change my life with anyone in this world. Because every time I see a child, you know, who gets hope in his life, every time I see a child who was blind and who can see, a child or a woman, you know, who was suffering, ostracized by society, and half an hour of our intervention for an operation of fistula can bring back her whole life to her. You tell me when you are in a position to create things like this and do things like this, 
how can you change those moments for anything else in your life nothing so i am so deeply grateful that i am able to do something like this and i got the opportunity to do something like this my message for the leaders of the world today would be to deal with life humanity empathetically if you were going to stop healthcare systems think of what would happen if your own child was needing that healthcare and was not getting access to it or to education if you need to send out people to war think of how you would be feeling if you were sending out your own children to war think empathetically one of the most impactful things that will occur after being in combat is the feeling of killing another human being once you've experienced it you'll see that it's not like anything else that you've experienced before and unfortunately that feeling your body will want to experience again it's it's really difficult to try to explain to somebody what that feeling's like right now i still feel like experiencing that again and it's probably why i keep a loaded weapon in my house i yearn or desire for someone to try to hurt me or to break in or to give me an excuse to use that violence against somebody else again if i could change anything i would take away all the instruments of war i would take all the guns all the dynamite all of those things that we're fighting over and i would put them in the other room the way a good mother does when the children fight over something you both are fighting over this nobody gets any oil you put the oil away until you can agree yeah i'd mother them i would mother them until they got along because they're acting like bad kids they're acting like bad boys So I would just take away all of the instruments of war. That's it. Done. In Iraq, one of my friends was hit with a car bomb in front of me and I chased after the triggerman with my squad and we were just we wanted to kill that guy cuz I can hear my buddy screaming, you know, he was hurt. And so we're running as fast as we can and we just just full of hate and fury and we just want to do whatever we can to just, you know, he hurt our friend. We're going to get him back. and we're just running sprinting as fast as we can with all that weight just sweat pouring off of us uh, through orange fields and then we get to a clearing and um yeah it hit me i mean the blue sky it was a old man in a white robe and a child just tilling a field you know and that just bring me back to reality I'm like what am i doing you know I'm a human being. I'm not uh you know, I'm not some instrument of what revenge, I guess. I don't know. I you know, it's just like you stop and you're like just people doing people things here where I'm supposed to, you know, where all this violence is happening and you stop and you're like um um throughout most of my young adult life and suppose my late teenage years I thought off and on about the British soldier that shot me because 
when you think of my story, at the end of the day, it comes down to two people, me and him. And I felt, whether we liked it or not, we were in a relationship. I was blind, and I was blind because of him. The person I am, the work that I do, the personality that I have, I believe was dictated by that incident. And I didn't know the other person behind the gun that fired the rubber bullet that changed my life forever. So, I often wondered who he was, what he was doing, did he ever think about me? But I never felt any anger. I never had a moment's anger or a moment's bitterness towards him or the British Army. And I'm delighted that that was the case because I think anger and bitterness is a self-destruct emotion. And, you know, as I reflect on it, I think, well, if I had been really angry, who would have it affected most? It wouldn't have been the soldier. It would have been me. So I always wanted to meet him. But I didn't know his name until 33 years after I was shot. And I found out his name, and his name's Charles. And I wrote him a letter in January 2005. And in January 2006, I flew to Scotland and met Charles. And to sit opposite the man that blinded me for life and caused so many hurts to me and my family. And to like him was an amazing experience. And Charles and I now are good friends.
It's the Magical Mystery Tour here on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. We're listening to interviews conducted by Jan Artus Bertrand as part of his human documentary project with music by Armand Amar. I was a captain in the army, and right now I'm a stand-up comedian and a singer-songwriter. I live in Los Angeles, and I'm pursuing my dreams. When I was signing the paper for the army, and I knew I was going to deploy inevitably, it was definitely going to happen. And I remember I was about to sign, and my hands started shaking, and I couldn't get the pen down on the paper. And I remember thinking to myself, like, Oh my gosh, I'm sending my life away. You know, is this worth it? I mean, I could die. You know, is all of this worth it? And I even joked to the woman helping with my contract. I said, it feels like I'm sending my life away. And she said, you are. <laughs> so um, that, that realization, it absolutely became real. And all of a sudden, when she said that, and even though I was joking and she was being very serious, <laughs> it felt right. And it was very easy for me to sign my, my name on that contract. I just knew it was right. I knew my reasons for joining were really selfless. They really were. It wasn't for me. It was for the guys and girls, the men and women in arms, and being able to help in some way. And I thought truly, I really truly deeply thought that I could make a difference. I really truly deeply thought there's a reason for me doing this, and I'm going to bring home these men and women safely. Unless you've been there, unless you've experienced it, then you have no idea. You have, you have no idea what we went through. You have no idea how hard it is for any soldier. You have no idea how difficult it is to see, you know, the, our guys, we call it a ramp ceremony when one of our soldiers is killed and we put them on a helicopter and in a coffin and salute him and you carry that with you one of the things i believe so wholeheartedly is that everything in life happens for a reason and through my experience and through that trauma of being raped i actually was able to help a couple of my female soldiers while i was in the army because i recognized the signs of their depression and that deep pain that nobody else could really describe. I mean, unless you've been through it, it's really hard to recognize. But I was able to recognize this in a couple of my soldiers and prevent them from committing suicide. And two of my soldiers actually brought me their suicide notes and said, Ma'am, I was, I was planning on killing myself tonight. And then you stopped me, you know, because I just asked them how they were and just I ended up saying, hey, I don't know what you've been through and I don't want to assume anything, but I've been raped. And through that, they were able to open up and tell me their experiences themselves. And so I look at it through strength now, as opposed to this huge travesty bogging me down. For me, it was tough because I used to have 
the worst abuse. I would have a gun put to my head and get told to go on my knees and beg for my life. And I would do it. My kids used to be watching. Or I'd get kicked out of the house and have to sleep outside on the steps. And if I moved from there, I would get a hiding the next day. It was tough because I thought it was me. I was the one that was doing something wrong in our marriage. You know, when I started talking about my kids, those were the most important thing of my life. And I thought, if I don't move on out of here, I'm either going to be dead or my kids are going to be dead. So I need to move on. I need to do something. And I went home that day and I said to him, I'm leaving. And I think Mark got a bit of a shock because he didn't realize that I was leaving. And he said, no, you'll never leave me. You've never, you will never leave me. You love me too much. And I said, well, you know what? That's what love is about, leaving. And I gave him two choices and I only gave him two choices. I said to him, you either go for counseling or I leave. And you know what? Today he's a better man. He's never lifted a hand up ever since. That's about nine years ago. So nine years ago, I was still an abused woman. We had many black people who worked on the farm, but in the house, there was a husband and wife who I grew up with. The wife looked after me from the age of one year old until I left to go to school. And her husband worked in the kitchen and did all the cooking. And they were my friends. I formed a fantastic relationship with them. And it wasn't difficult to see that they were treated differently to the way I was. If I walked with them to the little post office to post a letter or to put some money in the savings account, I would walk in one door and they would have to go in another door. And that was the first realization. And I couldn't understand why, but it was explained to me they're a different color and that's for them and this is for us. And as a young child, I didn't question it. For me, that's how it was and that was life. I think it took a long time for it to filter through my body and my being until I could feel and think differently. While working and growing up and bringing up a family, I really wasn't interested in the political side or apartheid or whether black people were treated differently or had different things. I was living in my world. I was doing what I felt was important for me in my little enclave and didn't see the bigger picture or get involved in them. I had no time. So much, much later in life did it really have an influence on me. When I could sit back and say, well, at least I can pay the rent and I can buy the food every month and I can stop that stress and that pressure. Could I look at the broader picture and say, gee, this is really not right. But the reality really came with the freeing of South Africa, when Mandela was freed. Up until then, I believed Mandela was a terrorist. I believed he was a communist. I believed he was the enemy. I believed that he was leading black people to kill us all, to take over South Africa. And when this man came out of prison and 
had no malice and had a kind word for everybody, it made the most fantastic impression on my life. In 1997, I think it was, just after, a few years after South Africa's liberation, I was sitting in my study one evening at my computer, thinking about my life, and I had been in Cape Town for seven years. My children were both grown up and educated, and I had this overwhelming feeling of shame and guilt that I had got to this stage in my life, feeling secure, enjoying my time with my wife. And so much has gone past that I knew very little about and did very little about. And with this exhilaration of the new South Africa and freedom of the ANC and of all the black people and being one country with 50 million instead of 5 million, I felt it was important somehow, some way, to rid myself of this guilt. And maybe a good starting point would be to write it down. And came across the Truth and Reconciliation site and decided to pen a little note just to say, yes, I'm one of those that feel ashamed. I'm one of those that did nothing. I'm one of those that didn't see it and didn't get involved, and I'm sorry.
When I became the first woman president of Ireland, it wasn't so much that I felt a pressure as that women were astonished. So many women cried on the day of my inauguration at the very fact that a woman could be president. I found that when I inspected a guard of honour, it was astonishing that a woman would inspect the military. All of these things were so new and different and I broke a ceiling that was very real in Irish society. But I myself, I don't know, felt quite confident, not that I knew how to do it completely because I was finding my way, but that I was as able as any man and I would do it differently and enjoy doing it differently and hopefully do it better. We do have the common values. I constantly remind about that. The most wonderful gift given to us was by visionaries in 1948, chaired by a woman, Eleanor Roosevelt, on the Commission on Human Rights that gave us the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. And the first article of it begins, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And I love that dignity comes before rights because dignity is about self. It's about a self-awareness. It's about all the things, religion, um, culture, and also it's the person lying in the street homeless who becomes invisible. They have no dignity in their invisibility. So nobody should be without the dignity as well as rights. And I think when we combine dignity and rights, it reinforces what human rights are all about. I think it's very important for young people to feel the vision and inspiration of leadership. Many of them are young leaders, but I think it's important that they know that there is a passion for truth and integrity and resolving the very complex problems. I belong to a group that I'm very proud to belong to called the Elders, brought together by Nelson Mandela. I felt very humbled when we were brought together in May 2007. And he spoke to us, Kofi Annan was there, Jimmy Carter was there, Muhammad Yunus was there. And he said to us, be humble and listen. Go to where the real problems are, some forgotten conflicts, and don't go thinking that you know the answer before you get there. Go and listen. Listen to those people and then use your skills and use your energy and your integrity to try to address those problems. Bring them to attention because you've got access to the table to power. And everything he said resonated with me. I was very inspired by him. And I think it's important that young people find inspirational leaders and are mentored to some extent in their own leadership because we need leadership in our world today. We really do. I'm utterly convinced that it matters. It's probably the most important thing. And it's not one hierarchical individual. Leadership is part of a whole structure that encourages space for people to act at all levels. I'm a grandmother. I, I love being a grandmother. I'm a real Irish grandmother. I have five grandchildren and they will be in their 40s in 2050. And I think about them and the world of nine billion people that they will share the world with. And I really feel extraordinarily concerned about what they will say about us. Will they thank us because we did take the brave, ambitious decisions about the sustainable development goals and climate that we need to? Or will they be so angry with us because we didn't under, we, we should have understood, but somehow we didn't give the leadership. I, I hear their voices and more often than not, they seem to me to be likely to be angry unless we quickly change course. And that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I ended my marriage. I had been married for 19 years, very unhappily and had stayed there for the children. And so at 50, I decided to end my marriage and 
That led to a series of other decisions. I'd been vegetarian for 30 years, so I decided to stop being vegetarian. I'd been working in a career that I wasn't enjoying for 20 years, and I decided to stop doing that and retrain. And I also had been in love with a woman for a very long time. So I asked her if she would have an affair with me, and she said yes. So I went from being a heterosexual mother of two to being a lesbian mother of two, which was an interesting, it's still an interesting experience. And so I sort of turned everything upside down. I just thought, I can't do that life. That life that was so constrained by judgments and mores, I don't want to do it anymore. And that series of decisions has been extraordinarily isolating. And I think I'm coming out of that isolation now. A lot of judgments are made about women who get divorced when they have children. A lot of expectations are that it's the most awful thing you can do to your children. That wasn't my experience, actually. Everybody's a lot happier. But I think also if you stand up as a woman and if you stand up for yourself, I think it frightens other women. I think a lot of women find it very uncomfortable. So that led to a lot of space. I'm a very happy woman today, but that's very personal. I myself am very happy. I am... I am myself. I, yeah, I, I cut my hair off. Oh my God, you know, women cutting their hair off. There aren't very many of us. Everybody wants to look like, what's that princess called? The one that just got married? Oh, most awful version of a woman on the planet. She looks like she should have been made out of Lego. And actually when you stand up and you do it differently, I've stood up and I've done it differently and I'm very, very happy, but it's an isolating path. But then when you find other people who are doing the same path, it's really cool. But I think all my life I've been a pioneer. And I feel like I'm still pioneering, doing it slightly differently. But I'm not running a salt march. I'm not Gandhi. Women don't have that option. We can't do it in the same way. It has to be more subtle. We don't have the same rights. I can choose anything I want. I can choose to be whatever I want. I don't feel constrained by history, which is quite nice, actually. You spend your whole life, I think, sort of trying to find your place as a woman. It's quite, it is quite challenging. It's quite difficult. Why are we second citizens? I've never really understood that. Why? Why are we so much less? So I think if I was angry, it's a lot to do with expectations. Why is it a man that's an expert that sells a woman cleaning products? Why is it a man that can espouse experience? I don't understand why a woman can't have that same experience. Why can't I earn the same as a man? Why is that? Why am I less? I think that's probably a lot of the roots of anger. And not just for myself, but, you know, globally, yeah. Why? Why is that? Why are we set up like that? And then there's thousands and millions of women who, who don't care. Quite happy. Facebook generation. I look at my children's friends and I just think it's a disaster. <laughs> I'm a gay man from Lebanon and we have no rights over there. And we have no rights in the Arab world in general over there. And I think what I can do more is what I've started to do is... I think I should come out even more. Um, <laughs> I am out to my parents, I am out to my friends, I am out to my work, but I think I want to encourage other people like me, because my mom, it's proven with time, she's gonna love me anyway, now, she knows, she knows my boyfriend, she loves me for the way I am, my dad as well, my friends as well. I think if you don't tell anyone, um, the other moms won't know that it's okay to be gay. People should be less shy, people should be more, daring when you have nothing to lose because some people have a lot to lose and those are not the people that should do the change but the ones that have nothing to lose it was the overwhelming joy that just hits you it just smacks you and just overwhelms you and it just makes you smile and feel <laughs> through your whole body 
And for me, it connects me with another person of caring so much for that person. And I would do anything for that person. And the person who I fell in love with, I am, I am gay. And I've known, I've liked girls ever since I was a little girl. And I kept it a secret from my family. I remember when Ellen DeGeneres came out, it was the first time I ever heard of the word gay before. And my parents were talking about it. And I asked my dad, dad, what is gay? And he goes, it's a girl who likes another girl and they're going to hell. And so I said, okay. And I walked straight up to my room, closed the door very quietly. And then I bawled my eyes out into my pillow. And I prayed to God every day to please let me like boys. Please make me straight because I knew I liked girls. And so I tried, I tried pretending I liked boys and stuff, but I never did. And then I met, to me, the love of my life. And her name was Jen. And gosh, it was just like my world changed. And I didn't really care about anything else. I just knew I wanted to be near her. And that was love to me. I was really fortunate. The education that I got from my parents was really amazing. I was so lucky to have just the best parents who really trusted and empowered and, you know, they just gave us everything. They, there wasn't a moment where my parents weren't teaching us. They were always teaching us, very actively teaching us work ethic, how to be a good person, how to treat people, how to be a good human being. Like that was a very important thing to them. And um, there was always lessons, always lessons. And I think that they just loved with every part of their being. They loved us so deeply. And, you know, that I think is just to know what it feels like to be loved, to know how to love and how to be loved is, is such an important thing. And they really showed us, my sister and I, how to do that. When my father died, the moment when he, that not knowing what that meant, not, not knowing what it would mean to be without him, I think was probably the hardest moment. And to have to see my mother have to say goodbye to him, and oh, that was just really hard, and all the family. But yeah, I think that that moment of not knowing really was so painful. And then after that, knowing that, learning the lessons, like being very soon, like the next morning when I woke up, and I had this moment where I was like, oh my God, my dad is dead. Like he's dead, he's gone. And I had this moment where I had a visual of my dad standing next to me. And all of a sudden I looked over and he was gone. And there was this massive hole, this huge, huge hole that was so deep I couldn't see the end of it. It was so dark, it was so overwhelming. And, and on the other side of that hole was this massive pile of dirt. It was so high, it, like I couldn't see the top of it. And I instinctively, walked around the hole, I saw myself walking around the hole, and I rolled up my sleeves, and I started climbing through the dirt. And as soon as I dug my hand into the dirt, I pulled my hand out, and there was strands of emeralds and rubies, and in this hand was a gold goblet. And I was so perplexed for a moment, and I just immediately, all of a sudden, I realized, okay, where he once was, he has left me a task, a responsibility, that I must climb up this this pile of dirt <laughs> that seems so overwhelming and I must dig out all of the treasures that he's left behind. 
all of the jewels, all of the lessons, all of the things that are going to enrich my life. And I just saw myself climbing through it and I'm still climbing up that, you know, and I've gotten so many, he's left me so many beautiful treasures. The magic moment that I had with my grandfather was right after my grandmother died. And I went to go see him and I knew that he was hurting, but I wasn't sure what kind of state he would be in. And she was his partner 65 years as well as his driver. And I went to see him and said, Grandpa, how are you doing? He said, did you know that for $4, I can get a shuttle anywhere in the city? I was like, wow, that's great, Grandpa. And he said, well, I went to Savon, I went to the grocery store and went to the woman behind the counter and said, I have this list of things. Could you help me find them? My wife has recently changed her residence to heaven. And I said, Grandpa, man, you always help me see the glasses half full. And he leaned back and he looked me in the eyes and he said, it's a beautiful glass. นี่นาปูชานี่นาเอ๊ะนี่เต็มเลยแค่ทุกวาตาดีมึงชมวนนี่อ่ะน้องจบออกมาก็จะให้เรียนจบให้ได้มากที่สุดจนเราแบบว่
That was a special radio adaptation of Human by documentary filmmaker and director Jan Artus Bertrand. And that's it for the show. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, be human. <laughs>